And it's five, four, three, two, uno. Hey, Alex Simmons, tell the damn story time. We're at it again. Alex Simmons, the legendary writer of so many characters, from Batman to Scooby-Doo to Archie and the world famous event 1930s African-American soldier of fortune, Aaron Blackjack Day. There he is, ladies yeah, and gentlemen. There you go, right there. <laughs> and me, I'm Chris Ryan. <laughs> yeah, Chris Ryan. Yeah. Writer, actor, director, and now publisher and editor of Soul Scream. Soul Scream. Much Alice. more information about this as we go. This there is what yes. happens when you have the green screen effect, folks. You never know quite how to hold the thing. There you go. Thank you. There See? you go. So you're going to learn more about that. We are here today for the last couple of episodes. We are here today. Yeah, okay. Go ahead, Chris. <laughs> for the last couple of episodes, we've been exploring writing from the writers who participated in Soul Scream Anthologine. There are five issues out. There will be six soon, hopefully before the end of the calendar year, but we'll see. The entire project has been a celebration of hybrid horror and authors who mix genres so organically. And then discussion of why and what happened and influences. And we hope that doing this will spark some inspiration for you or solve some problems that you might be having. And to help us do that today, we have a, an author, extraordinary author, who Wherever appears in yes. Soul Scream Anthologine, Monstrous Hearts. This is my Horror Writers Association New York chapter co-member, Mr. Oh, John P. Collins, Jr. How are you, John? Hey, hey John. I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And now I want to tell much. everybody, I want to tell everybody a little bit about John. Just a wee bit, right. though. Uh, let's see. John, I said, uh, John, give me some background. And here's what John told me. He says he lives on Long Island. That's in New York for all you faraway people. He has worked as a karate instructor, a laborer, a porn shop clerk, a construction equipment operator. He was raised on trashy 70s movies. 80s splatterpunk and the new wave of British heavy metal. Now, if that isn't a mix that creates an author, I don't know what is. That's Captain Eclectic. So, That's what we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that you seemed young for all of that experience. Did that was you all start, last week. started the porn shop at six? What happened? I'm not that young, but no. It, when you just leave high school and go right to work, you do a lot of different things. I've go. been at sure. my main job for over 30 years. So all the other stuff, wow. karate, porn star, and that's all. Oh, no, side porn, porn shop. You said porn star. I think it's Did I say porn star? Yeah. <laughs> all right. It, ladies and gentlemen, now it can be told. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, we don't talk about that time in my life. Huh? <laughs> 30 years. Oh, wow. I tell you what, you wear it. You know what? It must be the purity of your heart that shines through, John. Thank you. Uh, I try to be a good person. There I try. You go. Even while, even during your porn star days. Oh, no. <laughs> let, let the man All right. go. You have to let that go. <laughs> yeah. All right. Like I said before, I know John 
from the Horror Writers Association, the New York chapter. We're both in the same chapter. And I got to tell you, when I was undertaking this project, I was really afraid of the slush pile. I that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to let make sure people understood what my goals were. So I went through the inner circle and widened it out. And I was sitting in a meeting and just you were there. And between taking notes as the secretary, uh, I just kept, for some reason, just kept focusing on you, John. And I said, you know what? I have a hunch. And I sent the pitch to you. And of we have 35 authors in this collection. And I'm probably either happiest or among the top three to five authors. I am happiest that, that I asked you because it really, it paid off really well. I'm going to jump I'm, in here. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, please, John. I'm sorry for interrupting, but I needed to backpedal a little bit because you never know when, when people are catching the show for the very first time. So you said slush pile. You also said sent a pitch. And I just want you to sort okay. of okay. So a slush pile is mandatory. if you, if you yeah. do an open call, which if you're out there, I have not done an open call for Soul Scream and Thalazine yet. Which what is happens is you magazine. say there you go. it's part anthology, part magazine, and all hybrid horror. So an open call would be from this date to this date. We're looking for these kind of stories, and whatever comes in, the unwritten agreement is that the writer publisher staff all of those me would read them all and select from there since my staff is limited to me it didn't seem to make sense to take on a thousand uh submissions and 500 to a thousand could be doable if you give a window of two weeks or a month it depends on who hears about it and since i was paying such lucrative fees. Some people don't pay at all. So it is what it is. So instead, I reversed the process. And I would talk to writers, get a sense of them. And if the hunch kicked in, then I would ask them if I could pitch them, which is completely opposite of how it goes. But it wound up working. I think I pitched I think I pitched about 45 or 50 authors. So my batting average was pretty strong. About five or 10 of them said no out the gate. It's not something I want to be involved in. It's okay. And then five, it didn't work out. Oh, one story I purchased and then couldn't find a place for it. So that's still floating around to be used. But the rest worked out. And John, yours is among the personal favorite. It was just such a great pleasure, one, to read it and then work on. There was only slight editing that I, I asked if what you thought about. And you were fantastic about it. And it's really it's yeah, it's really fun to be able to say it's a beautiful horror story. <laughs> if you would be kind enough to read a little bit of The Lovers. Okay. All right. All right. Thank you. Thank you for that. I'm going to read, I'm going to break this up into two parts because this story centers, is a decent sized cast, but it centers on four characters. 
So I just want to give a quick read, a quick introduction to all four of them, but it's broken up into two parts. Please bear with me. Just to be clear, Uh, if you're interested, this story is in Soul Scream and Dalzine, Monstrous Hearts. Thank you. The Lovers by me. It was the way the older gentleman moved that first struck her. He didn't shuffle in as many men his age did when they entered the eatery. There was no hesitation in his steps. His movements were life, as carefree as a ballerina warming up for a routine known by heart. Walking up to the register, he asked, Is the corner booth available? Spreading his thin arm, his crooked finger pointing towards the far end of the room. Yes, of course, Amy said. Please follow me. As she led him to the booth, can I get you something to drink while you look through the menu? Offering her a cheerful smile, full and toothsome. A tea with some cream would be lovely, he said in his sweet, sing-song voice. Offering her a cheerful smile, she said, coming right up. Conscious that the sweet tone in her voice, as she turned back towards the counter, where she saw the female customers staring in her direction. With the lunch crowd now gone, Amy was able to count five, no, six, feminine faces with their eyes fixed in her direction. Some were playing a few with Curvy, even the daughter of a family eating, young enough to not be blemished by acne yet, was staring, sitting alongside her mother, both with their jaws hanging open. Amy felt naked, exposed under their scrutiny, until she realized they were looking right past her. She wasn't the focal point of their pointed glares. It was the old man. He sat reading the menu while absently fiddling with his keys, oblivious to the attention he was gathering. Looking closer, she saw that the object in his hand were not keys, but a small gold chain, maybe four inches long. She counted five small charms, spheres, space across the length of it. As he turned the object over in his fingers, the colliding balls chimed like bells. Their soft notes floated in the air. She felt lightheaded. Her knees threatened the buckle as if she was standing on a ship in rough waters. Turning, she entered a turning, she entered a long, dark hallway. The sparse light at the end faint, barely more than a glow. It was the soft chimes that led her forward, each step threatening to topple, topple her to the ground as those gentle bells filled her head with a lightness. There was a snap of the fingers in that darkness that jolted her awake, yanking her back from her daydream. She had walked maybe three steps away from the old man who was still studying the day's specials. Confused and a bit embarrassed, she turned away from the man. Looking over her shoulder, she caught the sight of the other women. The blank expressions in their eyes remained frozen before self-recognition began to thaw through the surface of the uniform empty mask each had worn, giving away to looks of shame. Did I look, look like that? She tried to remember the last 60 seconds of her life, but all that came to mind was darkness and the soft tings of metal. Did they hear the bells too? Tony, the restaurant manager, stared at her with thunderclouds in his eyes as she passed by grabbing the, to grab a clean mug. She could care less about his hurt feelings at that moment. Now I'm going to jump ahead to introduce into the next introduction. A half hour passed before an older woman wearing a gray rain slicker and carrying a small travel bag entered from the light rain. A clear plastic hairnet that covered her head from the drizzle outside, peeled off to reveal waves of platinum silver hair. It set in a beautiful wavy bob that framed her elegant features. Tony looked up from making change for a customer 
and was caught stunned by the woman's appearance. For a second, believing she was conjured from thin air instead of walking through the door. She stood there with a, pic a picture-perfect portrait of grace and unknown dignity, waiting for him to finish up with his business. May I help you, ma'am? He asked in his most professional voice. Yes, you may, she said in her most dignified voice, the most dignified he had ever heard. I'm, I'm meeting a friend here for lunch. Oh, let's look around. For, oh, there he is. Her voice rose to a pitch of excitement. Without so much as a thank you, she made her way to the corner booth. The old man who had entered earlier stood, a wide, goofy smile spread across his face. The old man. The same one who made all the women go psycho before. Tony had seen it and he was sure he was not alone. He watched Amy as she walked over. She wore her waitress grin as she took the old woman's order, but that smile became genuine when she turned her attention towards the old man, who, for his part, did not seem to notice. A surge of jealousy threatened to boil over within him. The smile that had brightened, the smile that brightened his morning for the last three months had turned sour for him. Ever since he hired Amy, it was a secret wish that he would wake up to that smile one day, that she would pe get past. Whatever problem was stopping her from letting him make an honest woman of her, giving her a job, offering her a ride for home, every little compliment, and for what? To be kicked to the curb without so much as even a chance? But she had that smile for that old man. That smile had become that smile that had become his caffeine to offer excuse me. That smile that was now caffeine for that old man. What did he have that was so special? And the old woman? She was everything Amy could be one day. The old man didn't deserve either. A light tinkle caught his attention. It was as if a songbird had flown into the diner, chirping a tune from an unseen perch. The music seemed to come from everywhere, filling his head until it smothered any other thought. Only the relenting gallop of a bell. He thought of himself on a battlefield as those monstrous rapid, rapid chimes told for the dead lost in the blood-soaked mud of fallen enemies and allies. Tony readied himself for the oncoming slaughter as the bells roared over the chaos. Snapping out of it, he found himself back behind the register. Looking around, he saw the angry faces of the men who seated around the diner. Even the line cook and the busboy had come out of the kitchen, dark shadows on their faces. Turning his attention back to the booth in the corner, he saw the old woman's hand striking a glass bell with a small clapper. Thank you. Excellent. I love that it goes from diner, regular day diner, to a little bit of the fantastical, a little bit of romance, and then we just get just a hint of darkness to come. And the rest of the story progresses from there, ladies and gentlemen. And yet this story, Alex, is called The Lovers. All right, John. What an interesting mix. Diner culture, an old couple. A lot of sounds, the bells, the glass bell, the clinging balls. And then each gender having a very specific and different psychological reaction. How do we mix this particular brew together? Where What's the roots of the lovers? Yeah, where did this come from? 
this came from I've, I I acquired a lot of photos from my uh, mother after my father passed away. Okay. Uh, she was she was downsizing. Thank you very much. She was downsizing. She was getting rid of a lot of things, and I said I wanted the photos. And as I was going through it, I came across a a photo from a wedding, my uh, aunt's wedding. It was a photo of my grandparents. And there was two photos. One was a photo of them smiling for the cameras there on the dance floor. And the second photo, I don't know if it was caught in that same dance, but it was just a candid photo of them dancing. And they were just, you could tell they were just lost in each other's eyes. Okay. My grandparents, my grandparents, um, my grandmother left while she was still had more years ahead of her. My grandfather, much older years later. Yeah. But they kept each other young. They were mm -hmm. just, my grandfather was a very, he was a great man. He was a great man. But he was the, he was like the driving force of, okay, this is what we need to do. My grandmother was the one who guided that ship. Mm -hmm. And put together, they were just this dynamic couple. And I always, even when that, at that wedding, I was maybe 12 at that wedding. Mm -hmm. Even at that wedding, I always was just, Whenever, when I started dating, as I got older, I always thought about my grandparents and how much I would love to have a relationship like they had. Mm -hmm. And luckily, cross fingers, I have one. There you go. And yes. I've seen so some pictures of you and your wife. The romance oh. is there, sir. <laughs> yes, it is. So it, it's it, like all my stories have started with an image. Mm -hmm. But because I'm a horror writer and I'm completely... My dark frame of mind just kicks in. I just, I started with an image and my image actually was, I was actually going to set this story during a World War One battlefield. Okay. And during the battle, the soldiers just see two people dancing right. on the field. And I, research is not always my strong point and World War One's fascinating, but the research World War One. Thick books, and sure. I'm just yeah, yeah. Any, any writer has a TBR file that's up to their head. So yeah, I didn't bother, but I all of a sudden I started thinking about everyday locations and things like that. Diner, mm -hmm. and as far as the uh, bells and chimes, I had a friend of mine who was telling me about how he went to hip, hip, hypnosis therapy, mm -hmm. and they would use bells and chimes to start and end sessions. Induce, so it just yeah. it just made sense. That's fascinating. And then I amped it up even more. Yeah. What we're getting, the darkness. Yes. <laughs> yeah. What we're getting here is the the table setting. And I would strongly encourage those of you who are interested in a bit of horror um, and watching a really organic transition. And this is a good example of that. I'd like to follow up if I can. Alex usually begins with 13 years of preparation, and then he writes. For, <laughs> for me, it's a line of dialogue, or I meet a character in my imagination, and then walk around with that character for a while. If I'm in the supermarket, what would that character shop? And, and the situation evolves, right? You start with images, in this case, a picture of your grandparents. Can you explore for us a little bit how the visual turns into the written for you? Yeah. 
for me, it it's always starts very clunky. It always starts very clunky because I I think it's something I write. I try to write from the heart. Mm -hmm. I don't. I try to write. I try to put something in every story that's at least meaningful for me. In this case, the genesis, like I said, was my grandparents. Mm -hmm. I tend to, uh, I tend it. It starts very clunky because I'm just trying to get it. I'm trying to get a grasp of what I'm doing. I I, I just worked on a story that dealt with, with dealt with uh, a widower, mm-hmm. and I um thank God I'm not, mm-hmm. but I have lost, I have lost some people that are very close to me, and for that case, what made it work is, I. I'm sad every day. Mm-hmm. I'm sad every day for the last 25 years. Oh. There's just degrees on what I'm. Some days it's just a small part. Some days it's big. More days than not, it's a small part. But even like my wedding day, 90% happy, but there was just that little bit of sadness because of those people that weren't being able to be there. Mm. With this story, with this story, I thought a lot about when I started writing it. My father was still alive when I started writing this. Mm-hmm. I didn't write the story for you, your pitch. I had the story written. Right. I just refined it for the pitch. I was having a conversation with my father. My father, my father was a mechanic. He was. He, my father led a very hard physical life, mm-hmm. and he told me the worst part about his state at that moment was. Not holding his, not being able to hold my mother and being, Uh and his physical contact with my mother was more medically dependent Mm -hmm. than it was affectionate. Uh And I I thought about when me and my wife were sitting on the couch, you are always just, even if it's just grabbing someone, grabbing one another's pinky, we might be saying this, there's always some kind of physical contact. And I've come to realize I need that. I need that. I'll come up to her and look at her. I'm like, I need an effing hug right now. And she's <laughs> and she'll hug me. And and it could take 10 seconds. What I wanted to convey with these two dancing is the need they had, the, the need that these two, the, the older couple have for each other. Yeah. And so trying to trying to put that into words, it was difficult. It, it really was. It was more difficult than any act of violence I've ever written, any building of fear. It was very difficult because I can only go from my personal experience. And that's where I come back to everything I write has has a personal touch that just comes from me. And I might be very repetitive. I don't know. But it's what works for me. Let me follow that uh, line of thinking there, because what further impresses me about this story, now that you've said that much, is we all write from our experience. The trick is to rewrite it and to work it so that it has a life of its own. And... I was unable, in thinking back to the story now, 
to pick you out in that story because you have taken the inspiration, the two inspirations now that we know, and you worked it into organic art. And that's, isn't that a key? Is to serve the story to the point where the story lives on its own. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I we have we have shared mutual acquaintances. If I know somebody really well, I have a hard time reading their stories. Because yeah. I have one person I'll leave nameless. When I read his stuff, I hear his voice. Okay. Yeah. And I don't want to hear his voice. I don't want to I want those characters to live for me. It's it's why I never want to meet my heroes. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's, it's it's I was very lucky to meet several people that I really admire, and no one was ever a disappointment. They were always right. very nice and very encouraging. Some more so than others. Some was kind of hey, thank you very much, and off they go. But the ones that spent some time and talked with me, and they're able to write without me hearing their voice, right. and but there's some people that I hear. I spent so much time with, it's I'd just better if I wasn't hearing that person. Yeah. I I met a few and one, there's always like a a holy trinity or so of writers, right? And one of them for me is Richard Price, who doesn't write horror at all. And I met him at a function. A matter of fact, I was asked to sit next to him and we got to talk a lot about writing. And for years after that, I would hear him at the beginning of the novel his cadences fit with the way he wrote. I found that if I could get past page 30, the characters took over. And, and that that saved, I was so concerned that I was going to lose this great joy I had at reading his work. But uh, yeah, it, it, it moves like that for me. But sometimes there are people that are just magnetic and you can't help, you want to hear their voice. Oh yeah. You know, so like, I, w- I was able to go to a reading reading of Jack Ketchum, Dallas Mayor. Sure. And it was just so powerful. Mm-hmm. It was just, you were happy to hear that voice. When a writer is good enough and has a powerful enough voice physically that they can do their own audiobooks, Joe Lansdale, yeah. King, they, yeah. they're, you, you, it doesn't matter. With Joe, his voice, he always sounds like an old friend. Yes. So <laughs> I don't mind hearing Joe when I'm reading his books. Yeah. Yeah. But I uh I got I'm better with that. I'm better with it here, mm-hmm. but with me, it's I feel very especially with this story, there were some things there, there's some anxieties in there I won't detail. Mm-hmm. This story I felt the most ugh, naked, most okay. exposed with this story. And a lot of them, I'm sad to say, no, I'm not sad to say because I'm over that stuff. I'm a much older person now. I was a very, I was very awkward with the opposite sex when I was mm-hmm. in my, as everyone is in their teens, but it was a hard thing for me to overcome. It took years of growing up. I say over, and I won't say what the event is, but I know the day I turned into an adult and that was January 26th, uh, 98. Okay. I know I won't say what the event is, but I know that was a day I went from boy to man. Wow. And I had a I I transferred from a boy's perspective 
to a man's perspective. And things got easier at yeah. that point, but it was just a lot of growing up. A lot of, unfortunately, a lot of the male reactions, and don't get me wrong, I my, my male reactions are just the opposite sex were more just spurring little boy crap. It was right. nothing. It was right. nothing. It was nothing criminal. Thank God. Yeah. It was nothing, nothing I ever have to apologize for. Yeah. The only thing, you know, when you think of that, you go back to that moment, like, Ugh, why, why did you have that reaction? That kind of thing. Right. So with this story, I felt I was really looking at things from the past that kind of still made me feel awkward about it. And I'm glad that person has grown up. I'm great, yeah. glad that stuff's in the past. But I think, I think for me personally, I can't speak for every writer. Some people are great at cranking out stuff that's no, it's just entertainment and they walk away. Right. Wonderful. For me, I always, I'm always examining something that might be with me. I want to write something of an all, an all female non-binary anything but male cast of characters i want to do something like that i just don't have that confidence yet but well, I it'll get when, there. I, when i figure i can get to that point where i feel confident i feel that's gonna be a that's gonna be a nice little victory for me because sure. it's very hard it's very hard especially in my family it was very hard you didn't talk about your feelings in my family. Like right. my immediate family, yes. Like I had a wonderful relationship with my mother and my sister. My brother, you, you can't talk to him about what's going on in your head, what's going on in your emotions. Right. My oh. dad, my dad was very closed off as far as that part went too. So oh. it's that's still always, something you have to grow. That's always part of what makes us uh, writers. If you don't have the access or you don't have the way to express one way, you go to another way. I would, I, hope also you say, I would also say that sometimes what you'll find with a number of writers, including some of the, the, the greats, I put that in quotes, not, not because I'm the opposite, but you can add whatever name within that category you want. Insert name here. Yeah, insert name here. It's, we're, we're always working stuff out throughout, right? We're, sometimes we go back to things from our childhood or our teen years or something in our early adult years or something yeah. that has sat with us and won't come out or won't go away or won't finally take its proper place until somehow we work through it. And one of the, one of the best ways is by writing about it, whether it's yeah. a journal or it's a, you create a character or you work it into a story. So perfect uh, sense to me. A lot of authors rewrite the story that's deepest within them in different ways throughout their career. And that's just, that's us working it out. And the reason that writers have a job is that there are many people out there working the same thing. Yeah. So absolutely. I'm sure that a lot of people will recognize something of value as I did in the lovers. Thank you. Now, John, you. if you hang out with us a little while, you're going to get to hear from another guy. Now, Alex Simmons he's been he's been writing for 413 years give or take a day or two <laughs> now alex is alex has written widely he's written in many different genres he has not one to spend a lot of time in horror but when i pitched this idea 
for this project to him and told him that I wanted to start with a teaser. I try to make all of these books very affordable, but the teaser, the holiday story teaser, holiday horror, it was the most affordable. And he says, sure, I'll come up. I'll, I have something for you. And if I'm not mistaken, Alex, you wrote something fresh for me. Yeah, I did. Yeah. And this is from right here. Come all ye faithless, the very, very thin <laughs> soul scream first teaser. And it's all about holiday horror. And we're going to hear a little bit of Alex Simmons's Believe. And then you can talk about the. We'll talk, but you can also talk about the cover later on. Yeah. yeah. Oh, good. Because I do want to talk about this cover. Yeah. All right. Okay. I'm just going to read a, a, a short bit of it, but it is, as Chris has already announced, it is called Believe. The moon seemed to shimmer a powdery white against a cobalt sky. Starlight flickered as snow drifted on a chill December breeze, dusting branches of pine and birch. A New England night at Christmas time. On a quiet country road, the two-story colonial-style home of Holly and Gary Layton sat in serene suburban peace. It was all white, with a recessed column doorframe. Black shutters adorned the six windows on the front, each with an electric candle shimmering. A light orange glow radiated from the living room window, suggesting there was a fireplace burning inside. Holly Layton had lived there with her husband and the twins, Jennifer and Joan, for five years and they had accumulated all the ornamental trimmings befitting the life of a successful upper-middle-class family. As the CFO of a tech company, Gary traveled a great deal. Typically, he missed a number of those special moments that come and go in the life of a family. But such was the price of a professional who wanted to give them everything while marching to the beat of his own drum. Holly missed him. She missed him a lot, but mostly it was an idyllic life that afforded her tremendous comfort. This Christmas was especially satisfying because her sister Rachel had finally come to visit for a few days. Rachel had married some time before and lived far away, so the sisters hadn't seen each other in several years. Rachel regretted the loss of time together, but she also felt that the work she and her husband performed was important enough to justify it all. Right or wrong, she'd felt the time had come to spend a holiday with the family she missed so dearly. After all, it was the season to be gathering, a season of peace and hope and giving. In fact, Rachel had brought some gifts for the Laytons, and Holly had ordered something extra special for Gary, and she was eager to get it wrapped and under the tree. So when the delivery man rang the doorbell, she opened it with even more childlike wonder and enthusiasm. The punch to her chest was so hard, it knocked the wind out of her and sent her crashing to the floor. Hearing the noise, Rachel rushed into the foyer in time to be backhanded across her face and slammed against the wall. Silas and Barnaby Fleet had come through the door like a force of nature. Either one of you bitches move, and I'll blow your head off. Silas's voice was guttural, 
but slightly high-pitched. It might also have been comical, if not for the look in his watery brown eyes and a large gun he had pointed at Holly's face. She laid there gasping for air and clutching at her chest. Barney hadn't said a word, but at the sound of footfalls pounding down the stairs, he stepped close to Rachel and pressed the muzzle of his gun against her cheek. Don't, he hissed. The girls hit the bottom landing and screamed at the sight. Shut up, Barney roared. One word from any of you, and we pull triggers. Both women frantically signaled the girls to obey. Time froze. Each of the women desperately tried to think of what to do. Each of them tried to size up the two men that threatened their lives. The girls were terrified. Holly feared for her children. Rachel feared for them all. Silas pulled several coils of rope from a backpack he had slung over his shoulder. All of you, on the floor, here. He pointed to the center of the living room by the couch. Again, Holly and Rachel signaled the girls to do as they were told. While Barney held a gun on them, Silas bound each, hands behind their backs and ankles together in front. Holly was breathing normally now, but she was trembling severely and the pain in her chest still throbbed. You, you can take whatever you want, just... Silas smiled. We plan to, sugar. Barney frightened Rachel the most. He was too quiet, as if every thought was too dark to say aloud, as if he knew what he was going to do and was savoring every brutal detail with great anticipation. Silas leaned in close until his lips almost touched Holly's face. Where's the cash and jewels? Upstairs, her voice barely a whisper. In, in the... She froze. Bedroom? Silas leered. Is that what you were thinking? He kissed her cheek, nodded to Barney, and then headed up the carpeted stairs. Barney told Rachel, We cased this place for a week. Even knew when the husband was leaving. Rachel didn't dare reply. Saw when you got here, too. Didn't expect that. But hey, you make do. Holly couldn't stop trembling. If they just take the things and leave, if they were just satisfied with... But she knew they wouldn't be. The attitude of these men told her what they had in mind. She felt sick. The panic struck her. Jennifer and Joan. Oh, my God, she thought. Would they spare? She began to struggle against the cords, binding her hands. As if he read her thoughts, Barney suddenly called to her. We've each done prison twice. You know what that means? He glanced back and forth between Rachel and Holly. The women shook their heads. We get caught again. It's life. No parole. Know what that means? The women didn't answer. So he pointed his gun at the girls. They didn't move. Do you? He aimed at Holly, and the girls shook their head frantically. No? It means we don't give a shit. Me and Silas, nothing matters. And I'll stop there. Thank you, John.
this was one of the I think there was four stories. Now there's five in there. This is one of the ways that I could start expressing how wide horror really is, how large a tent horror really is. Because by definition, this is a crime story. But for me, at first it's a crime story. There's a little fantastical about it too. But for me, that fear, that inhumanity, is what brings it across, at least in my argument, at least in my theory, to the realm of horror. Those four uh, people in that apartment or house are terrified. They are horrified. One of the things I wanted to express was that it's not always... The the werewolves. <laughs> yeah, or the demon at your door. It's the darkness within humanity, I think, is very much. I, do, I will remind us that it was a holiday horror piece, and Alex put in a little Easter egg, one of our favorite horror, Halloween, holiday movie, March of the Wooden Soldiers, because the two characters together are Silas Barnaby, which is the <laughs> villain of the March of the Wooden Soldiers. <laughs> Alex, when I made the pitch to you and you said, yeah, I got something for you. Why did you choose to go the crime route uh, to bring me a horror story? Yeah, I think I even said it a little while ago that we all work through things. We have our own little ghosts and things to, to exercise from our lives. But there's also the factor that some of us are drawn to a particular genre whether it's as a fan or as an artist oneself. And John was saying how he was drawn to write horror stories and all that. I've always been a, a major fan of mystery and mystery stories. Now, I wouldn't say crime stories, mystery stories predominantly, but obviously within those mysteries are crimes. And the first thought in my head was, how could I do uh, a mystery story with a horror element? And I, I first thought supernatural. But that wasn't speaking to me as readily as when I think of what is horrific, what horrific things happen in our lives. And I think one, there's two things that I think are absolutely horrific. I think rape is horrific. And I think molestation of children is horrific. These are the two things that and I, I often try and see myself as, as being a, a humanitarian and all that, and I'm not for capital punishment 90% of the time, but there are these two crimes that I feel like if someone perpetrates that, please remove them. I, wow. I just don't have, I don't have a lot of forgiveness in me for that. And so when I was thinking about what is horror and what is horrific, that would be it. And you also had another qualifier for this series or this particular book is you wanted, you said that you wanted some of the stories to have perhaps a female protagonist and, uh, and as many and, as possible. Yeah. And who, who deals with the circumstances and somewhat through her own agency. Right. So with those qualifiers in mind, I just put those elements together. And literally, I think I said to you when you first, asked me about it, I said, yeah, I think I have something in mind, but let me think about it. And I think it was really just a matter of a few hours of me playing with those elements in my head and 
and the pieces just came together. The setting was very much a Christmas Carol or It's a Wonderful Life or any of those other influences. You get that idyllic environment, that that world that we think of around the holidays. And then you take that horror and you place it within there. So if you're isolated to some degree and it's night and this terror comes to your door, then how do you deal with it? And how do you survive it? And that was where my head went. And then the other elements, which I won't say what my favorite one of those elements is, but the other elements began to seep in there. And I went, oh, yes. Okay. And I went to it. I went went right to work on it. And it provides a nice couple of twists in the story. Uh, our holiday horror, holiday crime. <laughs> yeah, it's a wonderful thing. And by the end, you do believe. So, um, and that is in um, Come All Ye Faithless, which is this book right here that has this the, the interesting cover <laughs> that has this new cover, right? I, I love that cover. Thank you very much. Yeah, well, I got to I gotta give Chris his props on this because um, this is not the original cover. The original cover has a Santa Claus ghoulish character it, on a smaller a, uh, face. And yeah, all it's that. like a goblin. It's a, okay. Yeah. And it was working. It was working. It, it, it went to press. The book was available. It was out there. I got my copy, all of that good stuff. But then life and technology and ethics and all that stuff did a damn. And, and Chris can talk about that. But I'm just going to say from my POV, Chris was handed a problem and how he chose to work through it. He says, what have I got to work with? It's like, it's like Robert Rodriguez. What have I got to make a movie with? Yeah, I've got a yeah. guitar and a turtle. And Chris yeah. goes, what do I have to work? I do have me. So here's the story, John. I'm in touch with a lot of my former students. And there's one just wonderful former student named Holly. I had posted some stuff that she had done with this, with an app. And she may have explained what the app was, and I may have missed it. But I was like, oh, it seems interesting. And this was very early in the days of what is going to become obvious fairly soon. So I looked up the app, and I was amazed that it was a, it was stocked with stuff so we could really provide art on demand, my innocent self said. So I started <laughs> experimenting with it. And I knew that I had written a story about Desdemona de la Cruz, who is one of the featured characters in Soul Scream and also the assistant editor. And she fights this uh, Christmas goblin kind of thing that comes and try, invades a family and demands their souls. And her job is always, she's the keeper of the Soul Scream. So she goes to save them and all that stuff. So I said, I wonder if this app could do a goblin hanging off Christmas tree. Seconds later, I had 20. And I found the same, uh, the best one. And I cropped, not it wasn't perfect, so I cropped the problems out of it. And that became the cover. And then I started reading all of these things about AI. <laughs> and I went back to the app and discovered that the app was using AI. And then I started learning that it was AI was stealing art from others. So I wasn't going to stand for that. So I had to correct the problem. 
By this point, I had started working with Matt Wilderson, who was a great cover artist, great artist. And I told him my problem and I told him I needed to replace it. What can you do something? Because he does great art without AI. For your cover, my your godson, Alex, my son, had put on a, a mask and had my father's old fatigue jacket and my old hat and became a character named McTavish. So I said, here's my situation for Come All Ye Faithless. If I send you some stuff, can you distort it, play around with it, do what you do your magic? And I thought that I would be unrecognizable <laughs> by the time he got done because he does great stuff and colors and all that sort of stuff. And the poor guy, I sent him 20 or 30 of these close-ups of me in like half-assed Alice Cooper makeup. It was very purple and all this different crap. And uh, I had white face and all, it's just ridiculous. And I said, this would give you an idea to what you want from there. And he came back, he says, I got, I think I have an idea for, I'm going to use a Christmas ball. And then this cover came back and it is a Christmas ball. And I'm looking into that ball, right? That, yep. the, the character is looking into that ball. But it, it looks fantastic. But yeah, I just really loved what he did. And he did the Christmas lights around Soul Scream. Right. Uh, Alex recognized who it was right away. <laughs> Come on, that's, that's my boy. I didn't see it. I didn't see it. That, but, thank uh, you very much. So hopefully more people will side with you, John. But yeah, I, I think it has the emotion I was looking for and no AI. I always prefer Matt over AI any day. Let me, the let cool me thing also jump in the, there. I'm sorry. Go ahead, John. You go first. The cool thing about this is this came from experimentation. This was birth. This cover is birth and experimentation. And that's sometimes the best art there is. Yeah. Whether right. it's writing or painting, experimentation. If it wasn't for experimentation, we wouldn't have David Lynch. Oh, yeah. We wouldn't have... We wouldn't have some of the wonderful writers like a Michael Cisco. Yeah, that's the one thing that always makes me excited about horror is you're always trying. Alex, you wrote a crime. You wrote. A, you started off with a crime story. I can't wait to read the rest of it. But crime and horror are so interlinked. I dare anyone to read Andrew Vox. Oh yeah, those are horror novels. Oh yeah, they're set in the real world. Those are horror novels. Yeah, and, and he fought that horror in real life. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he, he was a child's rights, a, a child war, abuse a lawyer. Warrior. Definitely. A true warrior. And a yeah. great, yeah, so, really, really great writer, really captivating. Uh, I was that's, also... that's, that's the great thing to me about horror. You can do anything. You you can be romantic. You could be silly. You could be deadly serious. You can't do that in, honestly, any other genre where the core audience will accept it. And, and that you make is... A, the... You make a comedy that's gets too dark, they oh you just went too dark. Horror fans like you, you go too funny, you got reanimator and you're like, okay, cool. I'm on this road. Okay. Yeah. And, and and that's what Soul Scream and Thalazine celebrates. I was gonna also uh, say that the experimentation factor is all throughout Soul Scream. Yeah. From, oh, definitely. from the very concept, you know, of mashing an anthology with a magazine format with the staff with Dela Cruz being a staff member, but also being the carrier of, there's all these elements that are saying, let's experiment. It's, it's Chris Ryan in a, in a lab coat and yelling, Igor, seeing what he can make happen. So this cover makes perfect sense to me. There you go. 
And it, fiction is what if, but horror is also why not? And I ran with a lot of that. And so did the 35 authors. It's really been fantastic. Yeah, I'm just curious because, again, I'm clock watching too. But I want to just roll back to John for a, a moment here. Please. We, we see what you did with the Soul the lovers and the Lovers. Yeah, I was going to say with the, the anthology and the Lovers. And I really, because I, I don't think I have a copy of that particular volume yet. So I'm going to have to get that. But the other thing I wanted to say is, is what else have you written if you could just talk a little bit about that, maybe a couple of your favorites or however you want to start, like maybe what was your first thing that you sold or anything along those lines? The first thing I sold was an online flash fiction magazine. I think the website is called flashfictionmagazine.com. And it was a 500 word story about a love affair between a mortgage, a mortgage tenant and its newest client. And it got a good response, and I got I got invited into some some anthologies that didn't pay, but I did it. I did it. I always take away from the experience. Mm -hmm. The first one was one called Full Moon Slaughter, and it was obviously Full Moon Werewolves. And I learned a lot about contracts. They were very good because we signed a contract and everything. And I knew I wasn't getting paid, but I was looking for the experience, and it was a good experience. And I started to do that a few times with stuff that wasn't getting paid for. And some stories worked, some stories didn't. But when one story went out, and I won't say the anthology because I'm reworking that story. They sent it out without any edits. And when I was just like, oh, reading it, so I was like, really? And I was so new. I've always been a storyteller. I, I read Yours Truly, Jack the Ripper when I was eight by Robert Block. And I was hooked. Yeah, I was my grandmother used to buy me my grandmother used to buy me for Christmas those Alfred Hitchcock anthologies, uh, like yeah, the house full and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And that was in the one called Sinister Spies. And I was just blown away. And the first novel I read was the novelization of Halloween. <laughs> by Curtis Richards. Sure. So I've always been a storyteller. I just only put it to paper for the last eight years or so. Okay. And those, so I did a lot of anthologies that I didn't get paid. And it turned out some people made a lot of money, but the writers didn't make anything. So hence why I'm not mentioning any of their titles, but I have all the rights to them. The first thing that I put out that was significant, that got me some notice and was the HWAs, even in the grave anthology. Oh yeah. Not um, a great collection. Great collection. And working with Carol Geisander and Jim Chambers, I was friendly with I was friends with Jim before that and working with two top-notch editors they just helped whip the story the story had potential and it was and Jim said as much he goes but there's things we need to work on it was such an education mm. and I was so happy with the way it, it turned out it got as far as recommended reading for the Stoker yeah look at that and I what what I joined a critique group before right before that that Jim was a part of, and what I decided to do because I was getting very frustrated with these anthologies that weren't paying. Right. I decided what I was going to do is I'm going to take a time away from submitting and just write. Mm -hmm. No, some I wasn't. I clicked off all the submission call groups and Facebook and all that, and I just wrote whatever came to mind. I wrote werewolf stories. I wrote 
sorry, Alex, and eight, a rape revenge story. I wrote all this stuff with no obvious, no plans of doing anything with it, make them as good as I possibly can. And if some way, somehow they fit in an anthology right. down the road or something, mm -hmm. I just had recently, besides Soul Screen, which I'm very happy, I, the people I know who've read and have enjoyed my story, I really appreciate that. I just had a story come out last week in an anthology called Fear Forge um, Fall Quarter 2023 for a Halloween story called Along with the Along for the Ride. Mm. And Halloween, I'm in my seasonal depression now because Halloween's over. <laughs> I, I'm just a, I'm just a Halloween fanatic, but it was just such a fun story. I think I and read that the, story. I, yeah, yeah. yeah that was the two friends. And the girl. No, this is no this that this is something completely different. Who wrote that story for Fear Forge? Yeah. Oh no, this is something completely different. And once again, <laughs> I'm dealing with morticians. I can't get away from them. <laughs> but the editor was just so kind, and oh, I love. And this story actually got rejected from two other anthologies, but I got the nicest rejections. Yeah, it wasn't like I've seen rejections. Oh, this doesn't work for us. But thank you for submitting. They both went out of their way to point out things that they really enjoyed. So I knew they actually read the thing, but they yeah. just felt it wasn't what they were looking for. I I don't understand um, nastiness or coldness no, when you're declining a story. It's unnecessary. And people remember that far more. What kind of rejection you get stays with authors. Yeah, I'd, ra I'd much rather be people. thought of. It's a reflection uh, of kindly. people who are reading it. I mean, and that's fortunate. I mean, as, as much as we, as we as artists may be following our goals, we don't know necessarily what is, and I'm not making excuses for them. I think it's still inexcusable. There's, there's certain people who wind up in that position because they didn't acquire the path that they wanted, or it is their nature to be irascible, or unfortunately they were forged on someone else's iron that particular because that's how they were taught or trained so it's unfortunate and yeah and it does damage i don't understand it emotionally but i get it intellectually and it's if we're lucky we don't have to deal with that too much but i'm just curious john you had said that i don't know i gotta back it up okay there it is okay <laughs> you had said that you had a number of pieces that you sent out and you were happy about this are you happiest with doing short stories or do you have a novel in mind or have you written a novel i'm just curious i wrote one novella that may see the light of day I, I, I look at it now there's work to be done i'm actually working on something now i can't really go into the, the nuts and bolts of it but i'm working on a novella 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 we're still debating the word word count but I, i'm looking forward to it i work better when I work on stuff with no timeline, I get lost because yeah, yeah. I'll constantly go back. Oh, this could be better. And I get stuck. I'll rewrite the same paragraph 50 times. You get caught in a loop. Yeah. Yeah. But when I have a time frame that I have to work in, I, I seem to thrive in it. Horror is my happy place. There's no tag. There's no tag I would be I'm more proud of aside from a husband and father mm. is horror writer. I know some people look down and those. I've been a monster kid since I was five. <laughs> that's how my mom got me in the house. 
Oh, Godzilla's on. What's Godzilla? Ooh. It's a giant lizard blowing up the city. Okay. I'm yeah, in. I've been a hard... Yeah, God, I'm in. We have two more questions for you, John. Okay. One, you had mentioned that you're a splatterpunk writer. But for me, okay. one of the part of the pitch was soft R at mm-hmm. the most. So how did you have to adjust this story? How did you accommodate that? Because your story is beautifully within that range. I don't know if I say I'm a splatterpunk writer as more than I'm a fan. Okay. Okay. And, and I'm not, and I'll be honest, and this might rub some people the wrong way, and no offense to them if they're watching. I'm not a fan in general of extreme horror. Mm-hmm. I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan of gross out stuff. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I, it's just it. It's just not. It doesn't do. It. There's some great writers who do it. There's some one. Wrath yeah. James White is a writer I enjoy quite a bit. Ed Lee, his sense of humor, but overall in general, being grossed out doesn't really do anything. It's like I. It, it's like watching for me. It's like watching YouTube videos of medical procedures. I don't yeah. like. It. It um, doesn't do anything for me. It tends to knock me out of the story, and that's my only. Not I respect. That that subgenre and all that, but for Soul Scream, I wanted, for example, you to have a copy, right, and read it, and then be able to give it to a niece or nephew without too much worry, depending on the age. Maybe not five, like <laughs> you started, but <laughs> I would well, say that the other thing too is that splatter and some of these other things, when they're done as a gimmick. It's a lot of the time it's the the effects are extreme because there's not much story there. Yeah. So they go for the sensationalistic reactions. And as Chris is saying, it knocks him out of the story. I don't think sometimes there's no story to be knocked out of. But when it's done well, God bless it. It's as good as any other genre. Absolutely. Like my favorite vampire novel, aside from Salem's Lot, is Skip Inspector's A Lie at the End extremely violent but it works in the story it works in the story it doesn't it's not it's not filled with set pieces it flows with the story and they both of them were such fabulous writers i still are not was they're such fabulous writers they were able to pull off and there's plenty lansdale when he went hard but it was it worked catch him same thing there's a writer out there now christopher triana or better yet summer cannon summer cannon Write some of the hardest stuff out there, but her work is so beautiful. And it's just wow. Yep. Yeah. And for me, for for a soul screen, my my litmus test on where I can go, when in doubt, go to Jaws. Yeah. Go to Jaws. (laughs) You you have a story of a man-eating monster, and it's, it's graphic, but it's graphic enough that there's no more horrifying image than Quint being chewed up by the shark. Right. And but no one, I've never heard anyone say that scene is gratuitous. I've no. never heard it. Again, because it's so embedded in the plot. Exactly. And it's so earned. And that's the deal. And you have to serve the story. Those yeah. two, so this, that scene gets me, but also the scene at the very beginning with the girl swimmer. When oh, she's absolutely. getting, that's because my imagination goes, oh, what that must, what must be going on beneath the surface. And so, 
on a side note, that movie is a perfect example of why you can't always trust technology because Spielberg wanted the shark to come out of the water, but the shark didn't work. Yeah. Yeah. That but, that um, was the blessing for, of limitations. <laughs> yeah. But for, for Soul Scream, I felt that any violence was secondary to what was going on inside the characters' heads. Oh yeah. That was the dark yeah. that was the darkest stuff in there. Oh, I because, agree hundred percent. Like, like I said before, I felt those the feelings that the men feel in this story, I felt a much more subdued version of that. And unfortunately, I know some people that are still stuck in that mindset. And yeah. they can't have no success with finding honestly, it's about in a lot of ways, it's about people not finding be able to find that person to connect with. Right. And they get angry about it. Yeah, hopefully again. just repress exactly but yeah, we I hope that, that was... art helps people along and helps your them. story may do that for some people too i have some more question chris yes i do yeah the final question i've been asking people as one of the 35 writers that i'm so indebted to and thank you again for participating in soul screen thank you again uh, a lot of our audience are emerging writers aspiring writers what might you tell them about habits that have worked for you or something that you learned on this story in particular that you've embraced as a writing habit? What advice might you give to aspiring writers? Other than the always be reading and always try to write, that seems to work the best for me. I think if you want to be a... If you want to be an effective horror writer, and this is just my opinion, if you want to be an effective horror writer, you have to be able to look inwards and see what you're afraid of. I'm still mm -hmm. afraid of the dark. Yeah, I'm still afraid of the dark. I know there's nothing in the dark. I'm in my basement right now. I will get antsy if these lights go out. Sure. And I know this. I've lived here for 15 years. I I know this place like the back of my hand. Don't be afraid to go. To those places that you're embarrassed about that you're fearful of those those are the places you may not even use it for your art maybe just as therapy i don't know but don't be afraid of those things and you gotta get past this whole idea of someone saying well, that's not scary because mm -hmm. what's scary to one person isn't scary to one. i don't get scared by movies anymore there are mm -hmm. certain movies that for the most part, when people say that movie's not scary, no, it's not scary because I don't believe in a witch living in a tree. Sorry. <laughs> but I always go back to this one scene, which still to this day chills me to the bone. And it's the home invasion scene in Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Oh, yeah. That's, I've watched, now I enjoy that movie for <laughs> twisted reasons. I enjoy it for the performances. I enjoy it for the mm -hmm. skill that was put into such a cheap movie. Sure. That scene alone, I always make sure I lock my door. I always make sure that deadbolt is set. That, that's effective art. Sure... If it gets you out of the chair, that's effective yeah. art. <laughs> don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to make yourself uncomfortable. I think, you know, there are so many wonderful writers out there that just, Victor Laval is another one. Keep, when you're reading his stuff, that these were things that bothered him at one point. Right. Whether he got over him, I hope he did. Because 
he besides being a fabulous writer, he writes some really dark stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you can be entertaining. You can be bombastic and all the other wonderful things that get your attention. If you're not connecting, at least with yourself when you're writing, you just, you, you, I don't think you're being true to yourself. I don't think you, I don't think you're putting a true expression out there. There you go. That's my, that's what I would say. Okay. Again, John, I really thank you for spending the evening with us. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. It was oh. a lot of fun and we learned a lot and, and we'll have love is, is worth the journey. And Alex, thank you ah, for sure. being my ride or die on so many aspects of my life. <laughs> this, is, this is better. This is cheaper in therapy. It's wonderful. There you go. That's right. Again, ladies and gentlemen, Soul Scream Anthalazine is a celebration of hybrid horror. For those of you who are trying to learn how to write stories, reading a lot of different authors is a great way to go and this is a good place to start it's a store every author gets a story then gets an article about them and we have a little bonus feature at the end and a lot of other little things that alex was talking about before but it's all meant to explore how strong horror is especially as a hybrid vehicle for writers so John was a great example. Alex is a great example. Thank you, uh, thank ladies you. and gentlemen, I hope you learned something today. And the rest is up to Alex. <laughs> <laughs> so be sure to leave your comments, questions in the comment section below. And of course, Chris, what do you often say? Thumbs up and hit subscribe. What else yep. do I say? Yeah, that's what well, you often say. Peace. <laughs> I do. I always end with peace. That's right. Peace, uh, everybody. Take care, everybody. Yeah. John, Bye-bye. thanks again. Thank All you. Right.